0: It's raining I'm stood next to the George Eliot statue listening to a man selling chunks of meat. <laughs> it's so cheap, I want to buy it. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women
1: writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke, and you might have guessed from that little pre-intro clip. Uh, But this week, we are talking about one Mary Ann Evans. Don't you mean uh, Marianne Lewis? Or you might know her as George George
0: Elliott.
1: That's worse than I thought it was going to be. We promise never to do that again. Okay. So, um, this week we're talking about George Elliott, and boy, do we have an episode for you. Actually, I think this, we haven't finished recording it yet, but I think this is one of my favorite episodes this season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not only do we have a special guest for you guys, a, a very classy guest this week, can I say, but then we also have a little mini road trip, which is maybe not as classy but I like the high-lowness. I think it's high-low. It's fun. (laughs) Very low. (laughs) It's good. Yeah. It's going to be educational (laughs) and fun.
0: Uh, So I forced Sam to spend Mm. our one-year anniversary just traveling around the Midlands of England in all of its, like, grey sky, drizzly glory, just mining, just mining the Neeson and Coventry for that George Eliot gold, you know? We tricked a hotel into thinking it was our wedding anniversary that was intense <laughs> when you say trick did you mean like you told them i said so okay so the website it was like mm-hmm. queen room but then it was also like oh fyi it might be two twins so i put in the i put in the note i was just like listen it's our anniversary i really really don't want twin beds and that's I all i, I that's see. all i wrote hmm I didn't mm-hmm. specify my wedding anniversary. <laughs> so so we, get anniversary. Yeah. we get there. We well, get there. Wow, I don't know. Is this included? There's like rose petals on the <laughs> bed. There are love heart swans made out of towels. There's a chocolate plate that says happy anniversary with chocolate dipped strawberries <laughs> and bonbons on it. There's a card, a handwritten card from the staff of the hotel wishing us a happy one year anniversary. Wow. Anyway, so great, that was a lot great. of pressure for Sam. Um, so we went we went <laughs> to the Midlands. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Lauren, have you read any George Eliot?
1: Well, Anna, I have this uh, really lovely, well-worn copy of Middlemarch here. And it's got, like, dog-eared pages and pen marks and just... It's all marked up and it's got little notes in it and everything. But, uh... Even though I've had it for 10 years, I have not read that book. And those are those are someone else's notes. I thought you were just like, I've just been making notes. I've just been dogging these been, pages. I've just been pretending to read Middlemarch for 10 just years. Sitting on, just sitting on the CTA. Just yeah. holding down the corners. Just, <laughs> mm, just nodding. Mm. Everyone on the blue line thinks that I yeah.
0: have read this book. That um, bitch loves Middlemarch. She is always loves reading it. that
1: book. Every day. Um yeah guys okay so here's where you might revoke my bonnets at dawn card i haven't really read any so i
0: have only read middlemarch okay. and i read it 10 years ago oh wow and it was for university i was like not keen so i did this thing um i yeah basically uh never read any of my assigned reading in the mm-hmm. five years I was at university, in mm-hmm. both of my undergrad courses and my master's, I wow. hated assigned <laughs> reading so much. Um, So I really wanted to avoid... Middle- I mean, Jane Eyre was assigned reading and I didn't read it. That's true. You only read it for the show. Exactly. Uh, but I did read Middlemarch, And I think one of the things that really got me into it was that I was reading it and then my housemates kept asking me, like, oh, what is this book about? And I actually mm-hmm. found that when I was recapping it, it... It was just like the most amazing soap opera like so mm-hmm. much happens and it's there so like the characters are so big and everyone is just gossiping about everyone and it's oh it's just juicy right And so that helped that really helped. It's the thing I feel like everyone's gonna be like, we should do a read long. we're not doing a read long. it's too long. hmm I've read it enough times that one time I loved it I don't need to I've never picked it up again <laughs> not doing it again <laughs> not on this show that is if you guys want to read it you just go and do that read it on your own time or pretend to read it on the train like Lauren did yeah but I do want to say George Eliot. well interesting
1: oh my god yes agreed
0: so interesting and uh basically the more research we've been doing like for the show Uh, Not just George Eliot, but also her partner, George Henry Lewis. They just come up all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, George Henry Lewis is the male equivalent of Harriet Beecher Stowe. He knew everyone. He comes up all the time. He's got an opinion on
1: Austin. He was writing letters to Charlotte Bronte. Well, Hannah, I'm really glad that you brought up my favorite person in the world, Harriet Beecher Stowe, because it's been a minute, and like really a minute, since we had... Sort of one of our infamous HBS moments. we had one two weeks ago, yeah. right, a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute. this one, this one. I said this season I was like, we're not going to do Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she just aggressively like pops into like almost every single episode. So I mean, next year, guys, we're gonna have to do Harriet Beecher Stowe, but um. With regards to Elliot. So I may not be very well versed in Elliot's literature, but I am really obsessed with her friendship with HBS. So these two had a mutual friend, Annie Adams Fields. And you may remember her because she is actually the second cousin to Louisa May Alcott. And she was married to James James T. T. Fields. (laughs) What is your name for James T Fields? Hannah, do not. you remember Fucking Fields? Yes. So, you can look back on our Louisa May Alcott, I believe the work episode and the Pots of Gold story and find out a little bit more about Fucking Fields, but um this is not this is not a Louisa May Alcott episode. So, anyway, Or a Harriet Beecher episode. Or a Harriet. Yeah, you're right. We got to get back to George. <laughs> <laughs> I will just say for now that George and Harriet were super mega famous. I didn't realize how famous Harriet was because in sort of like doing some reading around for this episode, I was like, George Eliot was super famous. And then Harriet Beecher Stowe was like actually even more famous. Oh. So I thought that that was really Higher interesting. Harriet Beecher Stowe is more famous than George Eliot. At the time she was like mega, mega famous. She was like doing a yeah. tour. And that's how Elizabeth Gaskell kind of like grabbed HBS Because Mm -hmm. she came over for a tour um, after Uncle Tom's Cabin was like a hit over here. She was going around England. And Elizabeth Gaskell was like, hey, let's be pals. Come visit my house. But didn't want to be friends with George Eliot. She didn't want to be friends with George Eliot. Well, there are reasons. We're going to talk about them this week. Why um, George Eliot wasn't really the most popular gal in school. But her literature, very popular. Very popular. Personally, kind of like the odd lady out. Um, But Harriet actually just totally didn't give a shit about that. She reached out to George, and they had this really adorable, like, friendship via letters. They never met in person. But I think they corresponded so for 10 years. In the first letter, too, I think it is, Uh, Harriet does say... um come to my house. Let's come to my house in Florida. Let's hang out for the summer. And they don't do it, but I, I wish they had. But anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself. So we're going to talk about that next season because that deserves its entire episode. But today we are just going to focus on George. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. I'm
0: just been excited Like, yeah, just. Just swinging my Harriet Beecher Stowe cocktail, just waiting (laughs) for us to – I'm smashed. I mean,
1: all of the shots. All of the shots. Who's our guest? Dr. Ruth Livesey is a Victorianist that received her undergrad degree in English from a little place called Oxford University, which is very near and dear to my heart. Her master's and PhD work was in women's studies, and it's from Warwick University, She currently teaches at Royal Holloway University, London, and is involved in so many George Eliot projects and research. I just, yeah, well, I mean, she's going to tell you about it. So let's do that.
2: So I think for me, the first time I remember reading George Eliot is probably Middlemarch, Um, And like most passionate Victorian novel lovers, I started with Jane Eyre. Like Jane Eyre was the beginning and end of everything for me for a really long time. And then Austen. And then, yeah, George Eliot definitely came a bit later. But I guess I probably read Middlemarch for the first time when I was about the age of Dorothea, so our kind of heroine of Middlemarch. And I was a very intense kind of bookish, nerdy girl. (laughs) <laughs> it's mm-hmm. very not surprising, given what i 've ended up doing <laughs> um, and I think i just i I just identify with Dorothea in those days absolutely passionately. Um, and one of the things I put on the um, Middlemarch read-along blog was how I've still got the same copy of Middlemarch that I've had since then, since the 90s mm. and I can tell from the underlinings in pen and the underlinings in pencil and different kind of squiggles, what what really drew me to that book then when I was like 18, I guess 17, 18, something like that um, and it was, it was definitely that sense of, you know I could totally see why Dorothea ended up in the situation she did in that novel marrying the older man who's seems to have the key to to knowledge and wisdom and all the things she wants to get done in the world. Um, But it just turns out to be, well, I don't want to be a huge spoiler alert for your followers, but it is not a good decision that she makes. Right. (laughs) Um, So it was was definitely, it was reading Dorothea's story um, at first. But then as I came to study her and read her more, I just realized how much there was in her books. Um, And then as a literary scholar later on, still just realizing how clever she is with what a novel can do and how a novel can make people feel about
1: the place they live. Is she the one for you then? She's maybe like your number one?
2: She's my number one. Yeah. Although I, I, I kind of hate making that choice because there are times when sure. I just want to go to Dickens. You know, there are times when, mm-hmm. you know, I know he's not a man for bonnets, but you know, there are times when I just <laughs> want to, to go to the darkness and the, the the kind of the stark kind of more black and white side of Dickens. Um, mm-hmm. But if I, if I want to read slow, which is kind of unusual, I'm quite a, like a lot of voracious readers, I'm quite a quick reader. But Elliot Sort of makes you slow down um, and pushes you away from the book and takes you back into it, and it's it's you know more, almost physically a different kind of reading process. And and that's sometimes I I need to slow down. I need to think a bit more, and, and she's she's good at that. And she's funny. People forget how funny she is. You know, she's she can be really funny too.
1: Now um, we know her as George Eliot, mm-hmm. but before she rose to fame, she was known by. Other names, so Mm -hmm. we've got Marianne Evans Mm -hmm. and Marianne Lewis, Lewis or Lewis? Mm -hmm. Lewis, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about those stages of life?
2: Yeah, well, uh, interestingly, when Elliot was sort of asked by her then husband, I think, about whether she'd write her own autobiography, I think she said something to him like, my life would be um, a great example only um, as a case of someone who was convinced they were going to be a failure and the amazing fact that she wasn't a failure. That's what she was really haunted by, that, that for so much of her life she felt like a complete failure. Because, um, you know, for 29 years, the first three decades she was living um, in a, on the edge of a small town in the Midlands, um, and... And she just felt she wasn't going to get anywhere. Um, and it was only later in life that she took to publishing fiction. So, you know, she was nearly 40 when her first fiction appeared. Um, you know, we're going to know so many great artists who are dead by that time. But she was, a, right. she was a writer long before that and a journalist. So, yeah, she was born Mary Ann Evans. Um, and she's the daughter of kind of lower middle class, upwardly mobile family. So her dad, Robert, huge figure in her life. Uh, was the land agent of various, very wealthy families, landed aristocrats and and, and big local landowners in the Midlands. So he came down to manage the estate for the Newdigate family, um, who still live at Arbury Hall, still in the family private hands, Viscount Daventry, descendant of that family, extraordinary, still employing a land agent. Um, But that was Elliot's father's job. So his job took him all over the county into big stately homes, but mostly through the tradesperson entrance, as we call it now, and Mm. um, into the homes of poorer tenants, um, talking about repairing their homes, seeing that they were paying their rent. Um, So he was a busy man about the land and the countryside in, in the Midlands, in Warwickshire in particular. And it's sort of clear from some of Elliot's reminiscences that she probably was alongside him in the pony carriage calling on all these people of different social backgrounds um you know from the from the poor tenant cottage right up to the to the grand estate and the housekeeper's room that she might sit in there whilst her dad was doing business so she had a a really broad knowledge of the different bits of society in the midlands and that place itself in those years is extraordinary um and and that's the kind of landscape we get in her novels it's a very particular Kind of middle England that she gives us, and she talks about it um, at the opening of Felix Holt and other novels as the middle bit of England between the Trent and the Avon. This this sort of imagined, you know, it's not far flung north, it's not the Brontes' wild moors where you you meet people with kind of rough and um, and, and queer folkish ways. Um, it's not Walter Maltesco- Scotland, it's not um, y- you know Cornwall with its with its dialect either. It's, it's a kind of very middling sort of place, but, but she makes it quite distinctive i think um so yeah in the midlands um where you get this really sharp transition between you're in a coal mining town um at one point or a manufacturing a village full of looms rattling and people working hard and then you're suddenly shot out into the countryside and it's thick hedgerows and rolling land and trees and rivers and and just rich lush farmland And, you know, that's pretty much what Warwickshire's like now, if you travel some of those roads up between, say, Stratford through Warwick, then up across Coventry and out the other side um, to Nuneaton, where she's from, on the edge of Nuneaton, that's still the kind of journey you take um, with the canals and the roads. Um, the kind of industry that's going on there now is very different. No coal mines now, no ribbon factories. Um, now it's all giant distribution sheds and aggregate dis- you know, towers and quarries. Um, but its place is still defined by this funny mix, cheek by jowl, of of industry, of, of of what's now British industry, so massive sheds for retail, um, you know, lorries drawing up and flying all over the country to fulfil our latest needs mm-hmm. and then farmland that really hasn't changed much over the two hundred years since she was born. Um so it's it's a little a little microcosm of a particular kind of England that she gives us and, and sets it up as a kind of problem. You know, how can we feel attached to this place? Do we want to feel at home here? Is this is this home? Um, because for her she left, she left finally um, in her late 20s and after she moved in with George Henry Lewis, um, who couldn't divorce his wife, um, for reasons I could go into, complicated reasons, um, she was um, never really spoken to by any of her family again. She was in exile in London um, and never went home again. But the books that made her one of the richest women in Britain were all about that place generally and and giving mm. this beautiful sense of uh, a particular kind of small town or village life that people all over the world felt that they could connect to. Um, and yet she herself was never going to go back there again in her lifetime. Um, and I think that's an extraordinary story, how she, she, she creates through words on the page a sense of, of home for a really homeless generation, that first generation where... People of kind of mass migration and and leaving your hometown then finding it unrecognizable when you go back again because of the huge changes that have taken place
1: um, so it's, yeah it's funny actually that you you bring that up because um one of the things that Hannah has, has actually written about is sort of that uh, double standard that meant that you know Elliot was living in almost complete isolation mm-hmm. while Agnes and George were like, continued to move throughout society mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I think some of it in Elliot's
2: case she she was so aware of being of the first generation of literary celebrities and mm-hmm. so conscious of how she could manage that. Um, I've got a, a great person working with me on the project, just starting to work with me on the project and when when she came for interview, um, Helen said, you know, people if you say George Elliot and people know her at all, people think they know two things about her. You know, one that she was really ugly and two mm-hmm. that she was super intelligent and we've got to change that story from just being those two things um mm-hmm. but you know and I, and I spent years just trying to avoid talking about the way she looked because it just was so boring and so sexist and no one ever talked about right. how George Henry Lewis looked you know or, or Herbert Spencer or any of these blokes around her looked you know and they were mm-hmm. some of them quite special looking <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but but she, but she was aware of being in an age of photography and de visi- visitor cards and fans of, of, you know, think about how Byron was treated or Dickens, you know, people crushing around to get a bit of their favorite author. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of the way that she dealt with society was, was about fame and authorship and how she should, should or could manage that once it became clear that Marianne Evans was George Eliot. Um, you know, that shocking, scandalous woman. Um, she just sedulously avoided putting herself in any situation where someone might not, might shun her basically in public or not invite her. So so she was very, very cautious. And I, it's hard to tell whether that actually then created this whole mystique because later in life, you know, people flooded, you know, young people wanted to come and sit at her feet at her salon and she, mm-hmm. yeah. and she managed her fame, you know in that way um but early on early on it was very shaky um and agnes you know herself she wasn't managing fame she just was managing you know family life in a way Mm -hmm. and i think that's a different situation from what elliot found herself in
1: it's funny that the next question that i actually had for you on the sheet was um Elliot was insanely successful during her own lifetime yeah. and ended up being incredibly wealthy. Yeah, and that's that's something we don't talk about on the show because yeah. um, quite often or have the opportunity because most of our authors are dead before they're right. able to achieve that, really. Right. Um, but like what impact uh, did that have on her career?
2: Yeah, she she was really aware of money. I mean, there's been a great book written by um, a guy recently on George, just called George Eliot and Money, really tracking down her finances. She was very canny about her investments and and how she dealt with her money and um, you know between her and George Henry Lewis negotiating with publishers and you know, there's a whole story around Romola and how much she was paid for it to be serialized in Cornhill and didn't really make the money back for them. And um, because she was a huge investment, a huge draw by the 1860s. Yeah. And she was incredibly rich, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she wasn't alone of women making a good career from from writing, obviously. But but the amount she made was quite extraordinary by the standards of the day. Um and she it's it's interesting as you read how she writes about how she thinks about herself as a worker. And early on when she's a bit of a jobbing journalist and, and starting to break through She'll write about herself in her letters, yes, yeah, as, as if she is a, a kind of crafts person or a labourer, um, you know, scraping away whatever her task is, and and really sees the graft of writing because because that's you know when she was you know she was elbows out uh, journalist you know she talks about going to some maths lectures at Bedford College that she's desperate to learn a bit more maths but that means she'll have to do without clean gloves and collars for a week or two to pay for the tickets you know she was a mm-hmm. like so many young people in their twenties in London just really trying to get what she could out of the cultural life of the city with not much to rub by on you know she's like the kind of the endless intern with the occasional cash job in those years I think and some of my favourite bits of Elliot's letters are actually from those years because they are really identifying. you know a lot of us can identify with that just hoping you're going to break through to the mainstream yeah. soon but in the meantime you're hanging around in bookshops and hoping someone's going to buy you a coffee you know it's kind of that <laughs> that bit of life she was in um, and obviously that's when she meets you know Lewis and, and as well as having you know living in Chapman's house in the Strand uh, John Chapman's house and that huge potential menage trois going to Manager a quatre and, and, and was she in a relationship with, with Chapman you know it's a rackety kind of existence where they're all experimenting with polyamorous relationships and 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 what is marriage and and what is sex for really i think a lot of that is but be- reading between the lines that's some of the big questions going on at that period of her life um but once she settles down with lewis yeah I, I think she's pretty canny about the the financial side of things because she knew there was there was nothing else you know when who else was going to swoop in and save her um, both she and Lewis suffered quite a bit from illnesses over the years, and, and so what security did she have, other than the money she was making from her writing? Um, you know, she wasn't. She was beyond the pale, really, um, and I think it's hard to to remember that sometimes. Um, and so, as she goes on and makes money, though, in the letters she stops talking about herself as a as a kind of hard graft worker, and it really interests me that increasingly she'll. She'll make a comparison between herself and a, and a manufacturer. Um, so as a sort of, and she always turns to ribbon weaving, which of course is a big trade of her of Coventry and then Nuneaton, So the two places where she knew, um, you know, local factory owners. Um, like the Brays, her great friends, that's where their money was from, and quite often she'll make a yeah an analogy in some of her um, notes on forms in art, for example, on uh, between what she's doing and and producing material literal material is one where she's very denigrating about the kind of um Decadent, or not quite by then decadent, but aesthetic writing of. Um, I think she's probably having a bit of a go at William Morris actually, um, and the whole idea of art for art's sake, um, and that's a bit toxic to her, and she compares it to turning out, you know, fashionable colored ribbons that you know are poisonous, um, which was a bit of a thing at the time, <laughs> a hot potato. Um, so, she, so she goes from thinking of herself as a, as a sort of labourer um, to, if you like, a, a manufacturer of, of goods that are supposed to improve people somehow, not just be art for art's sake. They need to have a bit of a purpose, a worth and a value. Um, and that's how she you know, justifies a, a lot of her work as, as, as somehow being of use ethically morally maybe
1: is there um either like a letter or an anecdote just something about her that you personally is there something that you personally hang on to or really love yeah, I think the
2: the image of Elliot that that I, I really hang on to is is from those early days. So it's not um I could I could go everywhere in her writing to find favourite bits for writing, but for Elliot as a person and finding that, that sort of disappearing moment when plain old Marianne Evans of Nuneaton is turning into George Elliot, but isn't George Elliot, it's her as a person, so much her as a person. Um and it comes from the the writer Mark Rutherford, um and uh, William Hale White, I should say. Um and he's describing what he remembers of George Eliot when she was editing the Westminster Review, and it's this lovely description of her sitting on a chair sideways with her leg over the arm, um you know, almost like a pen tucked behind the ear, with sleeves rolled up, and marking up proofs Westminster Review. And it's such a, I don't know, such a kind of casual image, a posture that we don't ever think of, you know, the Victorians in. Um, mm-hmm. And it's so far away from this idea of a kind of serious, sententious, moralising George Eliot. You know, this is someone just trying to get with the big ideas of her day and being fascinated by, that, by the, by what it is to be a writer. Um, you know, there are not many women who you cover on your show, who combine that professional life of letters as journalists, as editors, and then into fiction, and translators, of course, as well. You know, she's not the only one doing that. You might think of, I don't know, Harriet Martineau or someone, but she, but she does it on such a scale from the, the, the kind of more hack work, journalism, translating work, right out to redefining what a novel can do, what it should do, mm-hmm. you know, European kind of level.
1: Now, um, you've been doing so much Elliot work. <laughs> can you can you summarize some of it for us? I can. I mean, so
2: much so that like I was wearing a, I was wearing a, a cameo that was my grandmother's the other day with a kind of vaguely early Victorian profile on it. And my kids are like, is that George Elliot? <laughs> That's the one they, they know at the moment. Everything is George Elliot. Is that George Elliot, mom? Because um, everything I've been doing has been along those lines. Yeah, I mean, there's several bits to the project. the The, the overall project that I'm working on is actually not all about Elliot but but she's taken up so much of my time. The project's um, about provincialism in the 19th century and what provincial fiction Mm -hmm. is and how um, provincialism in English culture becomes such a kind of derogatory term in the 19th century and I think that's just completely where we are now um, culturally and politically and it's causing huge problems so small town life and and what it means is that is is the overall project um, but mm-hmm. because it's 2019 because it's george Eliot's bicentenary i've been doing a lot of work with um local org- organizations in the midlands to help local people Um, in the Midlands, connect with Elliot and her legacy now. Um, So I'm in partnership with the George Elliot Fellowship, which is a fantastic author literary society based in Non-Eaton. And we've done some workshops for local teachers, developing a new pack for secondary school teachers around Silas Marner that will be launching in the autumn. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a day um, at Astley Castle, which is this fabulous building just outside Nuneaton, managed by the Landmark Trust. You can now rent it. It's got a brand new architecture award-winning building slipped in the shell of this extraordinary old castle. Um, mm-hmm. And we did a day there in their Heritage Open weekend with, again, local primary school kids writing a postcard to George Eliot. what place. If George Eliot was writing a novel now, where in Nuneaton would you want her to say it and they did some fabulous work um and kind of we did a we had an actor being marianne evans um an interview by the kids who are writing questions on slates in the schoolroom to show her and a, and a kind of treasure hunt for words from her sonnets all over the landscape of the castle that kids made their new poems out of these cut up words so a really fantastic creative um set of events that i've been really privileged to work with some great local acting companies um Sudden Impulse Theatre, they've been helping me out as well with this. Um, and I have a writer in residence, Anna Lawrence, um, who's based in the Midlands, who's going to make a new work responding to aspects of how Elliot writes about place in the Midlands. And then in the autumn, uh, we're offering a course through the Writer Development Agency, Writing West Midlands, um, for established or emerging writers in the West Midlands to come on a, a six-week evening class um, delivered kind of devised by Anna and myself really helping uh, and reflecting on Eliot's own quite problematic relationship with the Midlands as place and landscape and mm-hmm. uh, uh, ideas of home and really seeing how that can help a conversation and enrich um, a kind of generation of novelists and poets based in the Midlands now and thinking about those aspects of, of, of being in place of placemaking and and um, yeah and literary heritage now. Um so that's those are just some of the things we're doing. Right. <laughs> um, and I'm also supposed to be yes, writing <laughs> lots of research. Sure. I am and I, I'm you know my my latest thing that I'm writing that I'm absolutely loving writing is um some of your listeners may know there's a fantastic exhibition on at Tate at the moment called um, Van Gogh and England. Mm-hmm. Um, which is curated by Carol Jacobi. Uh, and I was really fortunate to hear a talk from Carol Jacobi at our Centre for Victorian Studies um, symposium this year. And I had no idea, how did I not know this, that George Eliot, that Van Gogh, rather, was a massive fan of George Eliot. You know, in his letters oh. he writes about Bedroom All, that. that amazing painting, and says, you know, I was trying to get the feeling of, of Felix Holt, you know, one of his favourite novels. An Eliot novel, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm giving a series of public lectures this autumn. I'll be giving a lecture in various places um, on how seeing that connection can make us think about Eliot differently. You know, mm-hmm. he for Van Gogh, Eliot offered a kind of way of seeing the world that I think transfigured his art as well. You know, when we when we think about realism and depicting ordinary life, dull life. Or, or kind of Victorian social realism. Often you might think of a kind of black and white world, a kind of Dickens world of, yeah, a kind of monochrome. Um, but again, in Elliot's work, she tells you to sort of stop and and look beyond what, what like a dim or dusty or brown surface and see that underneath that, these are people with desires and tastes and passions just as strong as you and I. And that's a consistent thing in her novels from Adam B* particularly onwards, and, you know, scenes of clerical life. You know, scenes of clerical life, her first short fiction, Amos Barton, she just says unapologetically, I'm going to make you look at the dullest man there has ever been. who sniffs, um, you know, he's, he's got ugly, muddy complexion. Uh, the only thing that was extraordinary about him is his absolute mediocrity and I'm going to make you look at him and I'm going to make you feel for him. And that's what's so radical about her work. You know, no extremes, nothing else, but make you see the value of the everyday. Um, and in Van Gogh's work, like the potato eaters, again, you know, he painted this picture of the, the um, peasant family round the table eating their potatoes. Um but underneath, well, he said he wanted to put a wash over the top that made them look dim and dusty. But but if you stop and look, you can see all the original colours underneath that he put in, you know, vermilion and ochre and this sense of these people sitting around the table who are poor, whose faces are shown in this kind of lumpy outline. But you look at the eyes of the woman staring at the man and you see that this is a person, again, full of desire, unspoken desire. And the man is, is having a moment of, of reverie and, and pause. And both Eliot and Van Gogh give us this thing. They 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 kind of say, how dare you, to the culture that they grew up in, how dare you think that only certain types of people are entitled to be represented in art as having, yeah, an inner, a rich inward life. You know, I'm going to show you that the people who you might find deeply annoying also have their own point of view on life and you need to feel from their point of view to see the world and the colors in which they see it. Um, And for me, that's the the real radicalism of what Eliot does. Um, And Van Gogh, I think, helps us see that. um, You know, she's not safe. She's not conservative. There's something really radical in there, I think.
1: Hannah and I have been talking a lot about... um just, well, literary homes mm-hmm. in general is just a big interest of ours. And, um, of course, Hannah did the pilgrimage to Nuneaton. Mm-hmm. And then she um, visited the library where, you know, the fellowship has their collection yeah. there. And um, she went to the art gallery, yeah. the museum, yeah. and Coventry. She's kind of been traveling about for George yeah. Eliot. And um, we've kind of gone back and forth about, like, you know, wondering sort of what the impact of, like, not having yeah. a literary home has been for George yeah. Eliot.
2: Yeah. yeah, It's it's something I've been thinking about hugely as well. I mean, there are some really positive developments in that the George Eliot <laughs> Fellowship um, are now being supported by Warwick County Council to produce a business case for the visitor center they want to open at the back of her family home at Griff. Um, So it's going to be complicated, but they have now been established as a separate charity and they're fundraising to open a centre. Basically, I've photographed it so many times. It's a beautiful little old outhouse, but it's surrounded by dumpsters. Mm. Basically, I have lots of pictures of dumpsters (laughs) because that's the site they want to use. It's the back of what is the the hotel and pub at Griff. Um, uh, But hopefully that might take off. And I say the support of the council has been really timely and they're going to get some professional um, consultancy support on that now, which is been a fantastic thing to help okay. kind of have any kind of involvement with getting them to forward but you're right it's this extraordinary thing she i can't think of another 19th century writer in britain of her stature who does not have a, an author home you know the gaskell mm-hmm. house has been doing tremendous things and it's that's probably one of the newest we've got thomas hardy and dorchester you, you know you've probably been to them more, more than i have um but you know, Bronte Parsonage, what have we got? We've got Scott's House, got several Dickens House museums. Um, oh, yeah. You know, wherever he seemed to have touched a toe, we've got some kind of connections bringing up um, in heritage and tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real issue that Elliot doesn't have, a, have an author home. I mean, for me, the, there are two sides to it. So one is really practically, it means it's really hard for organizations like the Fellowship to tell the story because even you guys are having to go all over the place to find. What you want to find, um, so that's so that's really sad, and it and it creates a challenge. And it will be great from that point of view to have a site for George Eliot to bring some things together and to do some teaching and and deliver a kind of you know George Eliot experience, whatever that might be, <laughs> you know, watch this space. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, there's something bizarrely sort of fitting about it because, as I say, she she left that home, and so much of her writing is about never really being able to go back or capture that place because it's always changing um so you might remember in in Silas Marner and there's this extraordinary moment towards the end where many years later after he's left the manufacturing town where he was part of the religious community and he's been sort of shunned and, and, and leaves to go to Ravelo eventually when Epi's grown up they go back to the town to try and kind of clear his name or resolve what was going on with William Dane and and how he was betrayed and he goes back trying to find Lantern Yard um but he can't even find Lantern Yard you know he he maybe recognizes one building and goes in and asks and the guy in the shop has no recollection of there there being a Lantern Yard you know never mind the factory or the place of worship or William Dane it's all gone now you can't go back to a place um and that's this incredibly powerful message from Eliot about what it is to write in an age of really rapid change and industrialization. Mm-hmm. Um, what, but what you do have, I suppose, and you kind of get in Silas Marner, is that you can, you can attach to a new place or you can find a way to preserve your memories through writing or talking about them. So you can, you can keep an experience, but you, but you can't ever go back to the place. Um, So I think she herself is is really interested in these ideas of of, um, homelessness and finding a home for your feelings. Um, And as I say, she herself just knew she could never go back. And more problematically, and, you know, I always joke with the chair of the George Eliot Fellowship, John Burton, about this, you know, what are they are going to do with these words? In her letters she wrote after she'd left, she said, you know, I'd rather kill myself. I'd rather take charcoal mm-hmm. and kill myself than go back there with, you know, with those small minded bigots. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a difficult thing. You're not going to put that on the wall of a visitor center. <laughs> right, right. A bit tough. <laughs> <laughs> um and that's kind of that doubleness um, that we see in lots of stories of small town provincial life. You know, the nineteenth century offers it, and it's and it's a story of, you know, so much fiction across into the twentieth century. You know, you the story is often about leaving home, leaving the small place because you feel walled in or suffocated, um, and trying to, you know, flight taking flight if you like from that from that life, but at the same time that weird sense that that's where your identity is, you know, whether it's a national identity or a regional identity or just who you are, that's the thing you take with you somehow. Um, yeah. And, and small town life, you know, is is just, it's a really hot topic now for so many people for lots of reasons. And I think Elliot can offer mm-hmm. us lots of ways into that.
1: Now, um, Where would you suggest our listeners start if they want to look for biographies in particular for Eliot? Definitely. Well,
2: I mean, I have to say the one I recommend um, for general readers all the time is Catherine Hughes's biography of George Eliot. Um, Mm. I think what Catherine manages in that biography really brilliantly is capturing a sense of of Mary Ann Evans, you know, the person um and her you know extraordinarily sort of passionate life full of achievements and and so so in in a sense what you get in that is a, is a more emotional biography and some of that involves some more inference than the than the kind of rock solid Intellectual histories that you get. So, if I'm if I'm writing an academic article, and I want to be absolutely rock solid about dates and continuities and sources. I'll go to Gordon Haight. You know, he's still, you know, tremendous kind of work of scholarship, or Rosemary Ashton's biography as well for the for the kind of rich ferment of ideas that she's engaging with. If I'm thinking about hmm, when did Eliot start thinking about Spinoza or Hegel, then I'll go to Rosemary Ashton's biography. But if I'm thinking about that the life. And so much of the life that was lived richly, emotionally, in the Midlands before she came to London and thinking about that kind of personal drama that can be so engaging, then I I go to Catherine Hughes' Last Victorian,
0: I think. And we are back. So, here's an idea, OK? Hmm. Neon letters, definitely just... The line about small-minded bigots just right on the wall of the George Eliot Visitors (laughs) Center when
1: you walk in. I like. I would take a selfie with that. I mean, we keep keep saying, "Let us be in charge of some literary home somewhere, guys. We're gonna, we're gonna figure this out. A women's writers museum. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It would just. It would have
0: the best dressing up section in it. Yes. Just the best. Those those costumes would be so clean. They would be. I would clean them every day. Oh, guys. So I will say, I do. I really appreciate everything that Dr. Livesey was saying about um why it's complicated finding a permanent literary home uh, for George Eliot mm-hmm. in the Midlands, and it has its challenges and. I liked what she was saying about how it lends itself to her life and work more by not having one. Mm -hmm. And I loved trundling around in the rain, looking for the statue and visiting the archives uh, like there in the public library in the Neaton and then going to the museum and then going over to another town, to Coventry to see the piano and the exhibition that are in the uh, museum and art gallery there. But if I didn't have Sam driving me to those places, like how... Would that have happened? Yeah. Like, I don't drive. And so on public transport, am I going to, like, travel to another city and not just one city, but then two Mm -hmm. other cities and then go all across them, like, looking for all of these different things? Mm -hmm. And I know that, like, the fear is that she didn't, like, her relationship with the area is problematic and, like, it maybe feels like you're locking, locking her down there. But I think like the danger or maybe even like the current situation is that we're keeping her provincial
1: mm-hmm. and
0: locking her into the Midlands because you can only really access her if you're there already right. or if yeah. you're a local, like because she's not accessible in the same way that Austin or the Bronces or Glasgow. like right. people go on like trips, like you have to really wanna go if you're not in the local area.
1: Yeah, and like you've that, gotta be like a really diehard sad. or have a podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, or like accidentally. Yeah, you know, like, and that is sad.
1: I think it's really sad. So I put together a little montage of Sam and Hannah just running around looking for George Elliot, trying to find her, trying to make sense of her. I learned a lot, I have to say, and I laughed too. So <laughs> thank <laughs> you <guys. laughs> Sam,
0: say hello. 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 Uh, It's our one-year anniversary on Tuesday, and so what better way to celebrate than to make Sam take me to Nuneaton to research Mm. George Eliot. Absolutely. Uh, And we are in the George Eliot permanent exhibition at the Nuneaton Museum. Yeah? Yes. stood in front of uh, my favourite painting of her, and I've forgotten the name of the man. Uh, but it was painted when she was in Geneva, and she was nearly thirty. But it's kind of agreed that this is a very like prettified version of her. I reckon she looks banging. <laughs> you put this one up the other day, didn't you? Yeah. She's saying this was your favourite. Would you um? Yes. Tap that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. So you come out of the room with the display cameras into what feels like a replica of a Victorian parlour and in the corner there's like a fake fireplace and sitting there are scary scary waxwork models of George Eliot and George, <laughs> George Henry Lewis and who's the third mm-hmm. dude? John Cross. John Cross oh and John, John Cross is who she married after Lewis died, I think it's only six months later, yeah. oh 18 months, 18 months after his death, yeah and then they went to Venice and he jumped into the canal. <coughs> why are you laughing? Why? And an attempts at, an attempt at suicide. Because like he didn't want to... We don't know, we don't oh know why. okay, I thought you it's meant... Really you thought I meant it was a funny joke? You are going to get the hate mail in the Facebook group. That's very sad. That's very sad. A little table. Oh, that was made for her. By Elma Stewart. Oh. Elma. Is Elma a woman's name? E-L-M-A-A. Because that would mean... This is making me think of in Pride and Prejudice. When... Uh, uh, Georgiana Darcy has designed a table and Lauren and I were like what does that mean? And then this is a table mm. made by um Elmer. But Elmer could be a man. Now, I don't know why it's more don't likely that I think Elmer a brand huh? Oh. So this oh so this is a recreation of her drawing room at the priory. And it was oh yeah, this is really cool. So um, when they moved to the Priory, they spent loads of money to have this guy called Owen Jones to decorate the house, okay, to make it like luxurious and like the height of Victorian fashion. But then Owen Jones was like, mm, "You're a bit too scruffy for this nice house," and then gave <laughs> her like loads of lectures about <laughs> personal like appearance and how you should take care of yourself and like certain ways okay. that you should dress and stuff. Did she take them on board, or was she just dismissed? She- She did try. She did try, but. I'm not saying (laughs) she needed to, I'm just mean. She was really self conscious about her appearance. I think Henry James described her as being, like, hideously grotesque or (laughs) magnificently grotesque. Something, something really mean. (laughs) Um, People, like, people loved her, but people just talked so much about how they were repulsed by her physical appearance. And I think maybe Owen Jones was, like, getting at that a little bit. But she took to wearing like a cap or like a lace veil and you can see one in this cabinet over here. So she'd wear these like I think it's a mantilla, maybe? Yeah, look a lace mantilla. So that belonged to her and she would have, she would wear it as a lace um, over, over her hair, maybe to like soften okay. her appearance. But I think if anything it was just like a not added seen anything to like that before was that quite unique. I think Queen Victoria wore them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah it looks regal. Cool. Oh, it says that a bell has been removed for becoming George, and I like to think that that is like a ritual they're doing to turn uh, um. some, a modern-day person into George Eliot. Maybe me. Maybe that's why I've been compelled to come here. Oh, look, a cast of her hand. This after mal- she died. After. Yeah, that seems excessive. It? No, so it uh, it's a memento mori. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Still. Yeah. Just it is something doesn't mean that I can't be freaked out by it. It forms part of the Victorian tradition of remembering the dead through artwork, jewellery, and photography. Actually. Mm hmm. <sighs> well. If I die, don't take a cast of my hand. No, it's not a hand I'm going to take a cast of, mate. But it's your massive head. <laughs> it's actually head. It. Yeah so we stood in front was of this tiny. like they were all tiny women are like amazonians now she'd be terrified of me she'd think i was going to stomp on her But I'd say if she actually had a head on she would be the same height i'm just fatter the feet are very narrow the oh yeah okay true yeah very true she's very small this dress is like fancy so she was quite rich when she was wearing it and it's like blue silk taffeta it's kind of growing a bit now it's got these like black beading around the neck and then on each of the buttons and then over the shoulders and kind of down over the bust and on the sleeves and there's black lace and tiny waist really tiny waist and then like the cutest little like chelsea boot style thing like in a cream with little flowers on the toes would you not no okay but these, they just think possibly belong to her. They don't know. Oh no. The, pra- the practicalities are rising. So Middlemarch is three hundred and sixteen thousand words long, and she wrote it by hand,
1: and that's not including redrafts and corrections.
0: Oh yeah, it's just saying about how the corsets would have been super uncomfortable to sit there writing in. And- in her letters to her friend Elma Stewart they discussed the discomfort well that answers the question about whether or not Elma Stewart was a woman In her letters to her friend Elma Stewart they discussed the discomfort Marion felt when writing and tried to find garments more comfortable for her to work in later she used a footstool to raise up her knees so she could balance her work on her lap uh, We're in Coventry Cathedral uh, No. <laughs> uh, uh, Herbert the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum today to look at so yesterday we were in the Neon, and now today we're in Coventry. Uh, in, uh, at the Herbert we're in Coventry. <laughs> today yes we're in Coventry, at the Herbert Art Gallery, also yes. museum, yep. looking at. <laughs> got the. George Eliot's life, which is like five things on like a display but it's her actual writing desk number four her writing desk please do not touch and it's tiny it's so small and it's got loads of drawers to keep secrets in there's um eight uh 16 20 uh 21 drawers and they they're all lockable and like a little slancy thing i just this is why i don't get enough written because i don't have this writing desk and then also on top of that there's this little writing cabinet which I think maybe is like a travel writing desk or like a filofax it's got little boxes that you can put your letters in but then what's really cute and one of the front bits is kind of flapping open and there's um like a little calendar so you can like swap out the numbers in the month so that you can say like what year it is so they've got like her nightcap and her gloves and her sewing box I actually have a sewing box a bit like that it so the sewing box is dark wood with mother-of-pearl inlays of like birds and flowers with blue velvet insides and um, little compartments like full of thread and also there's a tray cloth which looks like something that you would find in a church but is isn't uh, I don't really I don't know what a tray cloth is but what's really interesting is there's um well i say it's really interesting there's the that little table that they were talking about in the other museum but this is the actual one that was made by elma bray so yeah
1: and we're back again and i have to say you need to give sam a sitcom (laughs) don't tell him that (laughs) his reactions are perfect He's so annoying already.
0: (laughs) No, he was a really good sport. And he, uh, yeah, just drove me around everywhere and took me to Ikea at the end of the trips.
1: Oh, wow. Perfect.
0: (laughs) So which he hates. Um, And that's how we spent our one year fake wedding anniversary. I just, yeah, I really appreciate him for basically doing every
1: Bonnets at Dawn road trip ever. Yes. He's got to do the road trips. Mm John has to edit the show. These guys have to be, like, involved <laughs> in this world. Thank you guys for being some of our biggest supporters. Some. Some. I mean, maybe the top two, because they really, like, get us to the places and make the show happen. Yeah. Yeah, no,
0: that's true. But this isn't about them. Listen, this is about George Eliot. Uh, I do, Drill. I do want to uh, say as well, just in reference to the George Eliot archives, um, I did find this like really small blue cloth-bound book. I wrote down what it's called but I didn't reference any of those notes while well, writing these notes obviously um mm-hmm. and it was I think it was written in the 1920s to com- to commemorate a permanent George Eliot alcove that they built mm-hmm. in the library in Coventry and it had like this beautiful stained glass window and these glass cabinets full of George Eliot treasure and I was like this is Ooh. perfect oh I can't wait to go and then I remembered all about it in the car on our way home <laughs> So if any of this has piqued your interest and you're in the market for like a juicy, salacious, gossipy George Eliot biography, then I heartily recommend Brenda Maddox's George Eliot in Love, which I devoured before we left on this trip. It's, um, it's a really human look at George Eliot. I think it doesn't focus on her writing as much as it focuses on uh, George Eliot as a woman and then the relationships that changed her life in so many ways. So her relationship Mm -hmm. with her father and her relationship with her brother. And then some of the people that Ruth mentioned in the interview. So um, there's like Chapman and, you know, love Chapman, obviously. Obviously. Um, And uh, you know, those other guys. Both husbands, yeah. Yeah, both husbands, both Both husbands. husbands. Just, there was, you know, and some, there's some,
1: yeah, really good stuff. There's some older guys in there, it's interesting her life is fascinating yeah it's ridiculous like i we couldn't we really can't contain it in one episode and it's relentless it's 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 relentless like yes we will be revisiting george elliott but again no middle march read along for now but that's okay don't say for now manage the expectations we're not doing (laughs) it well i will say ruth has been doing a middle march read along it's on her blog. I will put links to that yes, on our site. Yes, that's a much better idea. I think Ruth's read-along is probably the one you really want to do. It's all, um, you know, online. You can start anywhere. And it exists. So we're not doing the Middlemarch read-along, but we are doing an Elizabeth Gaskell read-along. The month of October, we are reading The Old Nurse's Story, or the old nurse's tale. You guys got it. It's the one that has nurse in it. And um, I will be throwing those threads up in our Facebook group. If you are not on Facebook, you can at me on Twitter and Insta and tell me your thoughts. And uh, Hannah, what are those what are those uh handles? You can find us as
0: always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook by searching bonnets at dawn and answering those tricks little gateway questions we won't let you All in right. if you don't
1: yeah true story <laughs> but it's All a nice right, place guys. to be
0: I like it in <laughs>